Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on Ibiza and the unique Belearic subgenre it spawned as well as Belgian new beat and other Eurodance trends of the late 80s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and Ryan Harkness and I are back to continue our discussion of last night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And this week we turn our attention to the island of Ibiza and the style they call Belearic which I think is a way to pronounce it. It's a way to pronounce it. I looked up multiple ways. Different and... people say it differently. I think like the, it's the UK that really puts the uh, the Balearic into it. And I, over here, I've just always said Balearic. It kind of the A and the E come together so smoothly. Why, why would you do it any other way? That's right. That's right. And so the reason that they, that they have a whole chapter devoted to this, because it's not quite a genre i mean i think it's it's even less than garage it's more a feeling or a way of mind but the, the real reason is that in the late 80s three very influential british djs went to ibiza or four of them trevor fung paul oakenfold danny rampling and johnny walker go to ibiza and have this religious experience that basically inspires them to go back to england and start the acid house revolution is that fair yeah, I mean, um, if you want to get down to it, uh, Balearic as a genre is a very specific thing. It's usually more uh, more chill out, uh, kind of uh, atmospheric with, uh, you know, maybe some trance elements to it. But when you're talking about Balearic in this book, uh, they're really talking about uh, the Balearic ethos that these guys picked up and brought back to the UK as kind of a, 
you know, a, 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 an important part in the history of, of, uh, of dance music. And, you know, I can't disagree with, with the official story on how everything went down. My only, my only complaint is that if we really want to get down to brass tacks, it shouldn't be Balearic. It should be Belgian because it was the Belgians that brought the, their sound to, to the Balearic islands. So that's my big gripe. That's a good one. And that's also why we're going to cover Belgian techno, which we didn't talk about last week when we talked about Detroit techno. We're going to put it here in context because the way they do it in the book, they talk about late 80s, early 90s, Belgian techno. And then in the next chapter, they go back and talk about what was happening in Belgium in the 60s and 70s and 80s that made them ready to jump on the techno wave. And it makes sense to me to talk about it in order. So that's what we're going to do here. Yeah, Um, the book kind of has a, this is is where everything starts to go a bit crazy because uh, 1985 to 1990 is when everything becomes a chaotic melting pot. Disco is dance, high energy is dance, house is dance, techno is dance, pop is dance, indie rock is dance. And Balearic becomes used as the blanket term for the melting pot and the popularization, a popularization of a style that is basically anything goes DJing, you know? Exactly. And so let's let's get into the tale. And so they, they introduced the chapter, and we've discussed this before, but this, this is going to basically start in the era. We're going to go back a little earlier in a couple points, but fundamentally this chapter is about the era when American dance music dried up in the aftermath of the Disco Sucks backlash. And so European DJs had to seek alternatives. And some DJs on this little island of Ibiza, which is in the Mediterranean off the coast of Spain, had limited record collections. So they really had to make the most of what they had, which resulted in an incredibly eclectic style. Um, and yet, as people like Paul Oakenfold could testify, if you were dropping acid or taking X and dancing all night to this stuff, particularly under the administrations of DJ Alfredo, Alfredo Fiorito, then it could be revelatory. And that's the spirit that they tried to bring back to England for the big summer of love in 87, 88. Um, so you can't argue with that. Here's a great quote from the book that um, – European music evolved into curious little dance species unknown anywhere else. It's a, it's a golden era of regionalism, in short. Some were never more than anomalies. Others would prove massively influential. We're going to talk about two of those and, and, and touch on the third one um, in this chapter. And then one last quote. When the sunshine eclecticism of Ibiza helped wash away rare groove and usher in the acid house revolution, British DJs would finally find time for records that weren't made by black Americans. And when it became clear that the foundations of house and techno were built with records from continental Europe, British snobs began reevaluating Italian, German, Spanish, Dutch, even Belgian club history. So this is the moment of equalization where this is a British book. It's it's you know written from a British vantage point, and I think it's fair to say that the Brits have done as much as anybody to drive electronic dance music. Is that fair enough? Yeah. If it wasn't if it wasn't for this upcoming British acid house explosion, I think uh, you know there might be a general sense from the people up top, you know, the money makers, the capitalists, and stuff like that, that electronic music was not not really worth talking about at all because they never managed to make any money off of it. 
Yep, I think that's absolutely fair enough. And as is, it got so popular that the powers that be would have to spend most of a decade trying to crush it uh, with the law. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Uh, and, and one last quote to start this off is that the Balearic spirit is the willingness to try anything in the service of the dance floor, or it's pop music that sounds good on pills. So that's the idea. I mean, they tell stories about DJ Alfredo. He was very early introduced house um, and into his mix, or not very early, but by the mid 80s, um, 80, 1985 or so, he's discovered house music, which is pretty hip. They're just putting it together in Chicago around that time. But he's also, I mean, he's playing everything. And they describe these moments of hearing, you know, even the most cliched stuff like you 2 I still haven't found what I'm looking for, being played at 6 a.m. after the long night of dancing, and suddenly it's this revelation. So that's kind of the peak experience people are going after. And these clubs were on this beautiful island. Uh, they didn't have roofs over them. There's still hotels on the island where they, they don't have to have roofs over the clubs. Um, there's a, a great documentary um, by Julian Temple, the guy who made The Filth and the Fury, et cetera, and the, all the Sex Pistols movies, great English filmmaker. And he, he did a movie a couple of years ago called The Silent Movie about Ibiza that really paints a grim picture of what this tourist economy is doing to the island, what it's done. It seems like in 2021 that the party is winding down. Uh, it's no longer, they've priced themselves out of being a place where the hip dance club kids can travel. But for a solid what, 30, 40 years? I mean, since the 60s, it's been increasingly a tourist magnet, magnet, but for the last, since the late 80s, it's been one of the world capitals of dance music. Yeah, over, over, I'd say, like basically from 2000 onwards, it's it's been established as kind of a mecca for uh, for for dance music, and and UK obviously were were the ones that pushed that for a while, but now the Americans are in on it as well, and all of the biggest names uh, pass through Ibiza, and uh, you're you're going to be paying for it if you go there nowadays. So it's kind of gone from. And this is this is something that's happened in general with electronic music is that it went from from basically being an, an affordable music of the people to maybe being something that's that's been a bit over crassly con uh, commercialized and 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 having all the soul sucked out of it. And uh, Ibiza is 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 a prime example of the excesses of electronic dance music becoming, uh, you know, just the, the main spotlight and the main purpose rather than maybe just the dance, the music. I think that's fair enough. And there's one very unusual song that that was close to me because my big brother played it a lot in the 80s. And if you're cool with it, I'm tempted to use this for our first song because it, I think, covers both the Balearic eclecticism that they're talking about and also the other style that really gets incorporated into dance music at this point is the chill out or trance style. We're not going to go into the trance too much this episode, but I do want to reference it. But do I have your permission to play music for a found harmonium by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra as our first song? I think, it's, I think it's a pretty good one to show how out there people were getting. Okay, cool. So this is the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, music for a found harmonium. And just imagine what you'd feel like if this came on after a house song on a dance floor in the middle of the night on a beautiful Mediterranean island. Thank you. 
composed music for a found harmonium by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, which is a really unusual group. I think the best genre you could stick it in would be New Age, maybe, but it's more musical than New Age. It's not strictly just ambient chill-out stuff. There's actual song structures. It's kind of classical music adjacent, but anyway, it was... Kind of folk back before folk became something weird. Like, it's authentic, like, you know, uh, British countryside folk. (laughs) Sort of, yeah, yeah. Chamber folk. Uh, It's you know, got the little string quartets frequently for their instrumentation. Anyway, this is the kind of weird stuff that they that they were dropping on the on the punters in Ibiza that blew Paul Oakenfold and company away so much. And and we talked about DJ Alfredo. We should also mention Jose Padilla at Cafe Del Mar, who um, was one of the people who introduced that song as a dance floor favorite. And and he's a guy who failed as a club owner. His his partner killed himself and they had to start the club. So he retreated into making tapes of his chill out sets and mixes that got him a gig at cafe del mar he becomes you know one of the leading djs on the island and react a london-based label starts releasing his cd compilations volume one sells eight thousand copies but by volume five he's doing like half a million of each of these so uh you know again like you were saying this is where the brits show that there is a market they are that market for this stuff and that the record industry can make money on it but now we're going to move north and go to Belgium, which they say has the most interesting club history in mainland Europe, which is pretty interesting because Belgium, I mean, it's not quite Luxembourg or Monaco, but it's barely a country. I mean, this is, I think the, the famous quote is, the British slapped this together to annoy the French. Yeah, and there's 10 million people there in, in, in 1990, so it's not, a, it's not a massive market by any means, but it's, it's another one of those interesting quote-unquote backwaters where, uh, where things get interesting. And I think it's, it's primarily because they're, they're such an odd duck that they don't mind being odd and they don't mind going against the grain, and that's what you need. Is I think this chapter really kind of tries to emphasize the fact that England and New York and and some of these other uh, places where where all this music is being shaped and formed has started to become a bit too stringent and and locked in. I mean, you saw uh, back in the in the beginning where Northern Soul ate its own tail and and died because it wasn't because it got so sucked into what it was that it wasn't willing to evolve. And I think maybe at this point the whole idea is that you have all of these places where you know it's a disco club you got to play disco it's house you got to play house you got to put this at 120 beats per minute all night and there's formats and and you know after a while you just get locked into it and that's no fun anymore and all of a sudden belgium comes along and these guys start playing records at the wrong speed pitched up to plus eight a 45 record at 33 and things get really interesting Yes, it does. And like Northern Soul, and we should point out Northern Soul also directly helped birth high energy. It helped bring house and techno to England. So it has its historical place. But Belgium had their own version. They called their thing popcorn. And it's something that emerged in the 60s in their discos that was a, quote, rich stew of soul doo-wop modern jazz and at this point i'm going what the fuck <laughs> but doo-wop soul modern jazz ska and latin plus weird exotica and it becomes this retro scene where they're playing 50s and 60s music in the 60s through the mid 70s so very contemporary with northern soul and it set the scene for innovation because it 
you start having DJs, you have clubs, and you have an obsessive music culture. And this stuff charts. I mean, popcorn compilations, this becomes a genre in Belgium. Um, and I've listened to some sets of this stuff, and it is really fun. It's amazing. Like, modern jazz usually does not mix well with contemporary R&B, pop, um, rock, and then you throw in doo-wop, and it's really crazy. But if, if you listen to a good set of popcorn, you can kind of hear what they're going for. And one of the keys is to remember that opioids were big then, too, and people are dancing slow to this stuff. And that leads directly to Belgian's contribution to dance music, which they called New Beat. And like you said, they start slowing down records they take the mood, the dark mood of industrial music, which is a European thing that's sort of a cousin of dance music, I would say, uh, evolves in a linear fashion parallel with dance music through this whole period. But, you know, Kraftwerk was a huge influence on, on techno and electro. It was also a huge influence on industrial and groups like Nitzereb and, and Einstein Stanz and Neubauten. Um you know, go in the sound direction, but the people dancing are very aware of this stuff. And and they, the champions of New Beat had this whole rhetoric that I think is clearly modeled off industrial. Like here's a quote from one of their uh, leaders, a reaction to disco, New Beat is quote, completely soulless. It's sterile music created to dance to and nothing else. And so even though House basically blows it away um, as the pop culture champion globally, in Belgium, this stuff makes the charts and and sows the seeds for Belgium's techno success. And it think, all go ahead. I think I think if if you're sitting here and you've never heard Belgian new beat, uh, the best track that I think everybody knows that we can point to is Yellow's Oh Yeah, and uh, you hear that and you're like, this is the weirdest thing ever, and it's really slow and it's really strange. It's undeniably kind of techno, but it's obviously also not, and that's Belgian new beat. And let's go ahead and, and play our second song and make it um, uh, – what was the song title? It's by Yellow. I know they're in the Swiss group. Uh, the one that you have picked out. I think – aren't you going to go uh, Nux Nemo's Hiroshima? Your, uh, well, Hiroshima? I had thought about Nux Nemo's uh, Hiroshima or Hiroshima. We've got different names for that. And I also thought about Flesh by a split second because that's one of the records that the DJs actually slowed down. But I want to spare Steph some work. And let's go with the yellow track you just mentioned. What was the title again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yellow. Oh, yeah. yellows oh yeah which i can't believe i forgot that title because that's really my older brother had a couple of yellow albums because they were on ralph records with the residents back in the day and they were even an odd duck on ralph records and if you're an odd duck on ralph records you are weird um, but yellow comes up a lot in this book and and is an important thing in music history and yeah i think it's a good example of new beat and it's also telling that there's this moment in time when the powers that be don't know is the next big wave of dance music going to be this European new beat? 
coming out of Belgium or is it going to be house an acid house coming out of Chicago? And ultimately we know the answer was house, but for a moment it's on the knife edge and it was, and it was all there in Antwerp going on. And, and, and I, I really don't think that you can have anything that kind of comes forward afterwards without Belgian new beat. It, it's, it's so slow and so strange and it gives space for producers to put in, uh, you know, a lot more than maybe what's going on 120 beats per minute that, while trance's roots may may be in Germany, I don't think it becomes what it what it became without Belgian new beat and the in, industrial influence. Because industrial really were the first guys to put the synths forward the way that they did. So I find that 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 entire th- this, this entire middle point uh, is extremely important. And and even though it didn't become as big as Acid House, uh, it, it definitely gets in there and corrupts the DNA of dance music completely. And without it, who knows where we'd be. Absolutely. And let's go back a little bit. After Popcorn, there's a DJ, Jean-Claude Maury, uh, at a club called Murano in Brussels, who's not only the forefather of Newbie, because he's a direct influence on um, DJ Fat Ronnie, or Ronnie Harmson, who's not fat, but that was what he was called, DJ Fat Ronnie. Um, he's a direct influence on that guy. He's also a direct influence on DJ Alfredo at Ibiza. So this whole ideal of eclecticism really comes from Jean-Claude Maury um, at the Murano in Brussels. So again, Belgium punching way above its weight uh, in, the, in the history of dance music. And um, his successor, DJ Fat Ronnie, is playing at a club called Ancient, Ancient Belgique. Can you say it better? Ancient Belgique. There you go, much better. And he's a lot like Frankie Knuckles in that what he plays becomes a style, even though he disavowed, I'm not a musician, I just play records, was his quote. And you know, he died early, heroin abuser. Um, but he created what became a genre that was without... Fat Ronnie, there's no new beat, essentially. And he he played, um, created a darkish movie atmosphere, he, you know, with the foundation of James Brown and ABC. So you've got American funk and British synth pop. He throws in jazz, oddball pop tunes, selected rock tracks, like I Want to Be Your Dog by the Stooges, stuff by PIL and the Arrhythmics. He also throws in a lot of movie soundtracks and creates this darkish, paranoid movie atmosphere. And when Industrial comes along, he he mixes that into uh, his stew right in there. So to me, it's really evocative. For some reason, the DJs that you don't have sets by that aren't well documented take on this oversized space in my head where I just love imagining what would a Fat Ronnie set sound like and what would it have been like to be there in, say, 84 or 85? And, you know, I just imagine myself with a trench coat and a dark club getting my James Bond on, frankly, you know, in, in, a, in a futuristic James Bond, kind of a James Bond RoboCop thing. And so, I don't know. It's just, it's just fun to, to groove on what uh what i imagine yeah to be to be part of that scene when it's happening and to have you know hundreds if not a thousand plus people in a club dancing to this completely new weird stuff that's really only going on in this one country yeah and and uh and yet the world's gonna listen in the end and and it's up to debate who's the first one there's a record by a group called a split second called flesh that was 
DJ started playing at 33 instead of 45. So they're slowing it down, going for that, really fattening up the bass grooves when you do that. Uh, DJ Mark Gruels at Antwerp's Prestige is frequently credited, but it also might have been Jean-Claude Maury himself who, who slowed that down. So again, as always through this book, they keep reminding us that these records, you can listen to the records as produced by the producers and released, but it doesn't really come alive. You're not really hearing it until you're hearing it played by a DJ. Because just like techno last week, if you hear a Derek May set, it sounds so different from just putting on a Rhythm is Rhythm record and hearing what he produced in the studio. It really comes alive when you hear him jacking with the EQs and you know throwing it all around uh, from speaker to speaker in a club. And again, these guys are on that pitch control and just pulling it all the way back and slowing it down. I mean, they could slow it down even more, but that's pretty slow and and it adds a heaviness and then a bunch of producers a guy named joe baguette comes out um puts another group called next nemo another group uh morton calls it calling themselves morton sherman and bellucci to make fun of of england's saw or maybe it's a tongue-in-cheek tribute um but uh, their real names are roland beeland joe casters and herman gillis and they're 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 rushing out records because once it starts charting in Belgium and some British record companies put together some compilations of new beat right at the same time as they're putting out these compilations of house and techno, you know, it's a horse race and it's anybody's guess, but the writers of this book kind of write it off saying that this stuff was rushed out. That most yeah, of it's, it, it's interesting to see which genres end up being written off as kind of cheap and tacky. And I, I, I remember reading, I, I was it, was it the Chicago house or was it the Detroit techno where they said that, that, that the entire genre was overwhelmed by talentless hacks, just putting out as That's much house. garbage as they could. That would be house. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, we could, we could say that about a whole lot of genres, I feel. And, uh, to, to dismiss the best of a genre, uh, on account of the fact that commercial success came in and, and killed the golden goose, you know, I mean, uh, you could dismiss disco that way. And, you know, uh, guilty is charged on that one. If you go back and listen to the disco records, uh, uh the disco episodes, it's, it's, to me, it's just, it's just, it's it seems it seems a bit short-sighted and it seems a bit like uh the, the author's showing their bias here fair enough um but i do think it's fair to say that the gold rush aspect hurt house commercially and kind of contributed to chicago stalling out but i mean the clubs got shut down in chicago at the same time the radio shows got taken off the air their brightest lights signed to geffen and moved to la but this flood of cheap records from tracks records really hurt them and, and 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 inhibited them. And I think it's a reason why British DJs and producers took over the Acid House torch and and are the ones who really broke it internationally. And it, you know they might be right here that the it might be about the ratio of gold to dross, and maybe the ratio was off. But anyway, that's that's our new beat discussion. We'll come back in a minute and talk about techno. But first, they take this side detour and discuss Italian Afrocosmic. And this is a classic example of a post-facto genre, which is a totally normal thing. I mean, doo-wop, for example, was not called doo-wop in the day. In the 1950s, if you said, I want to buy a doo-wop record, nobody would know what you were talking about. They were called Birds records because it was groups like the Ravens and the Orioles, etc. So it's totally normal for a genre to only be identified and named post-facto. But this is a genre 
that if it existed was in Italy and Italian discos from the late 70s through the mid 80s. And I kind of um, don't even know whether or not this this chapter was in the original version of the book, because I certainly don't remember it. And uh, I feel like I would have because it's actually pretty great. I think I think you might be right on that, because it was only named in 2001 and, and the book originally came out in 1999. So, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. But yes, I, I, I love to dig up our old, old copies. But it's this legendary moment. Again, it's the point in time when Disco Sucks hits America and American record companies pull the plug on dance record production. It's before electro and house and techno uh, pick up the torch. And so DJs all around the world are just, they've got hungry dance force to feed and no new records. And these guys don't like Italo Disco, which is their home country style. That's one of the dominant styles that like we've seen was a big influence on house and garage and techno, but these guys didn't like it. Um, and again, it's got the eclectic spirit. Here's a description of the kind of things you might've heard in a tallow Afrocosmic disco quote, trippy kraut rock nestled next to tranquilized Brazilian batacudas, slowed down Afrobeat, sliding into OMD at 33, the whole of music history jumbled into an electric soup. They should have said stirred into an electric soup, but not every, not every metaphor is going to be brilliant. Um, <laughs> and they, they, they identify a particular club, the Baia Imperial Club in Gabichi Moire near Rimini, Again, apologies for the pronunciation. Legend says it was founded by a tycoon who'd married a Russian princess and had seen the clubs in New York, brought back two New York DJs, and has a big club going. Then those guys quit, and they've got understudies, two Italian kids named Valdelli and Mozart, who step up and go on uh, to create this genre. And when we come back, we'll, we'll hear from our sponsor. We'll come back and tell you that's the legend. And then we'll come back and tell you what the researchers showed us about Italian Afrocosmic. There actually was a tycoon. His name was Giancarlo Tirati. Uh, there were two New York DJs, Bob Day and Tom Season, although in the legendary version, these were big star DJs in New York. In reality, nobody in New York had heard of these guys. And this is this is a, this is a classic, always a, a classic story of what kind of happens in the in the old electronic music days. Is you brought a DJ over from another country and you slap a big flag next to their name and you go, "This guy's a huge." Where he comes from? No, he's just your buddy. He's just your buddy from New York. <laughs> yeah, although you could say the same thing about Frankie Knuckles. I mean, he was a distant number two to Larry Levin, Larry Levin in New York, but he comes to Chicago and he's the disco king and then the father of house. So, well, at you know. this point, the the, the 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 crazy thing is, these two guys coming into Italy, they they end up basically being the only guys in the country who know how to beat match. And I don't know how they ended up leaving those jobs because, you know, even today with the world of washing DJs, everybody's a DJ, everybody's loser boyfriend is a DJ. The skill of DJing still has a certain aura. Uh, but can you imagine how it must have been for these guys like in the late 70s, early 80s to come to Italy and be the only people in the country who can beat match and, and make these DJ sets happen? 
Absolutely. Huge competitive advantage. And I mean, suddenly the music doesn't stop. There's no break in the beat. It just keeps going. And you're, you get out on the dance floor expecting a three minute commitment and you're out there for 45 minutes, maybe hours because the beat matching DJ has no mercy and won't let you stop. And it turns out that there was a guy named Daniela Baldelli and that there was a kid who was called Mozart. His name was Claudio Rispoli. And uh, they played uh, at one club that got shut down. There were the club I already mentioned got shut down. Then the Cosmic Club opens up in 1979. And when the U.S. records dry up, they get weird. They're not into the Italo disco. So they're just experimenting and just throwing all kinds of stuff on the turntables. The Afro Cosmic thing comes in because they're playing a lot of psychedelic jams and they're playing a lot of Afro beat, which is... I wouldn't say, I, I, I would, okay, it's a big thing that happens in the 70s as artists like Fila Kuti and others, African pop starts getting recorded and these African musicians have been hearing what's coming over from America and Europe and throw back their version of it. And, you know, here it gets mixed into the dance club mix. And, uh, you know, I think it's also an influence on chill out music and other things. So again, a very underdocumented scene that, um, we can't go back in time and hear this stuff, so we can well, only imagine. You can go on YouTube. There's a decent footprint. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, going into the 80s, you get to hear what these guys are doing. DJ Mozart, a little bit more traditional, a little uh, traditional funk and disco DJ. Uh, you know, uh, his Italo is more on the funk side, which is which is cool to me because I love all of uh, basically the 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 Italian movie scene with all of the exploitation films and stuff like that they go crazy with the funk and italian funk music is actually really good dj mozart mixes in a decent amount of that stuff to keep it pretty banging but daniel uh, baldelli is he's my new favorite listen to come out of this reread he's there's some great remixes uh, mixes of his from the 90s uh showing how strange he was compared to to everybody else and then he's still djing now and there's boiler room sets of his floating around and uh he goes really full robot craft work swinging right into minimalist afrocentric techno he's to me he's the backbone of this this afrocosmic stuff because he's the stranger of, of of the two and if anybody was driving forward this 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 strange kind of melange it was it was him i think and and he didn't uh, there there wasn't a lot of music recorded from from this scene but he seems to be making up for lost time since the 2000s he's released some really spacey 80 80s tinged records and albums over the over the last 20 years and uh, it all really holds up it's all very impressive so if you want to check out uh, daniel baldelli do it it's worth a google Awesome. And and glad you updated us on all that. And I and guess so- one one more thing to mention about this Italian scene, because it's in contrast, I say, to to you know the Belgian scene, and we're also going to be talking about uh, German the German techno scene in a second, is that this Italian scene was strangled in its crib by the Italian police over over drug fears. And and apparently, you know, there's no it's always kind of hard to figure out how serious or, or not serious uh, a, a drug thing is. They were saying that, you know, it was a real big heroin scene. And Baldelli is 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 quoted saying, yeah, you know, I play my music slow when it was helped by the fact that everybody was on heroin. But was everybody on heroin or was it just uh, you know, that 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 standard if if people are out dancing at 5 a.m. in the morning, then then obviously drugs have a bigger part than than maybe they play in the rest of, of, of culture, which to me is always been, I think, uh, an assumption that is taken on face value that isn't always correct. You know, 
yes, there's drugs in the underground dance scene. Is there more drugs than there is out, out, out in the great world? I'd say, you know, percentage wise, it's not that big of a difference. So, but uh, this is another scene that was strangled in its crib. It was killed by the cops and, uh, you know, uh, like Chicago got, uh, got shut down with their, with their after hours laws. My, my scene here in, in the little backwater of Ottawa, Canada, we got shut down by the cops. The, the, the government put in a, a no dancing past 2 a.m. bylaw and I had to move to another city to keep doing my rave stuff. So I understand how bad it is when, when the authorities decide they're not going to let a scene flourish. Yeah, it's it's always a drag. And, uh, you know, in their defense, it is Italy in the late 70s, the Sicilian Mafia and and uh, and um, the, the Camorra and Napoli are heavy duty there. Um, and clubs do tend to be places where dealers come to deal. So, you know, if you're trying to fight one of those problems, I don't think dance clubs are the place to target, but I understand why they do it. Um, and and junkies are kind of like Nazis. You know, if you've got one Nazi and 11 other people and they're not beating up the Nazi, you essentially have 12 Nazis. If you've got, you know, two junkies in a club of 200 people, if you don't throw them out, pretty soon you're going to have more junkies and it's all going to be junkies. So it's, um, you know. Yeah, I guess it, with, with heroin, it always does, it does end up being junkies. And I guess, you know, it's uh, it really depends on how hardcore that scene gets, whether or not they're just doing ecstasy or if they're smoking angel dust. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it makes a difference. But now we're going to move on to the next part of the story. And I'm going to throw um, something out there. Let's see. I'm, I'm tempted to go with Joey Beltram again. Do you have an objection to playing another Joey Beltram song? Always down for some Joey Beltram. All right, so let's hear Joey Beltram's Mintasm as one of the key techno tracks. And when we come back, we'll talk about how this music became the soundtrack to the fall of the Berlin Wall and post-liberation Germany. Joey Beltram's Mintasm. As we said last week, Joey's a guy from New York playing in the Detroit techno style, but his music becomes the soundtrack to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, industrial music and krautrock had had some sway in East Berlin before the wall came down. Hardcore punk actually played a, a role in bringing the wall down. Um, it was a very small scene, but the way that the Stasi overreacted to it helped trigger a backlash and, and brought the wall down. But once the wall came down, people wanted to hear something a bit more sunny side up, and techno filled the bill. The And it makes sense because the roots of techno are in things like craft work and in industrial music, or they're very aware of industrial music like Front 242, Skinny Puppy, Nitzerab, that stuff. There's... Um, Dance scenes in Dusseldorf, uh, the DAF are there doing dance adjacent industrial. Einstein and Newbauten, I've mentioned before, the sound of collapsing new buildings. They're making records and playing crazy live shows throughout the 80s in West Germany. So when the wall comes down, um, it's perfectly primed. Carl's Klaus Stockhausen has brought house music to Germany via the front in Hamburg and clubs like 
planet and Tresor open up in Berlin and no longer East Berlin or West Berlin, just Berlin. Having lived through that moment, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I've got so many friends who were over there when the wall came down and just an absolute feeling of the chains have come off. We're off the leash. We're going to do what we want. There were so many empty buildings in Berlin and quickly Belgian producers sort of seized the mantle. Detroit techno is the initial sound, but hardcore techno coming out of Belgium quickly becomes the sound that dominates. And uh, again, you can't, you really can't under understate how much that freedom helped everything kind of come along. The the word is basically no one really knew what was going on after the wall came down as far as, you know, uh, what laws were still uh, in, in place and what wasn't. So you could just have a bar that just operate, operated as they saw fit. And obviously, you know, nowadays, every every single place has has very strict rules about when you can serve alcohol and if you serve alcohol then you have to close at this time even if you don't even if you decide to stop serving alcohol no you can't stay open past three not germany it was just everybody was allowed to do whatever they wanted for a while they had bigger fish to fry uh unification was a big deal that was going to take a lot of effort and i think they just decided to to actually pay attention to the important stuff and and leave the kids alone when it came to whatever the hell they were doing and uh that's how you end up with Germany becoming such a, uh, a focal point for uh, as far as the scene goes. Absolutely. And there's a great quote in the book that says, um, before the wall fell down, the highlight of an East German's music fans year would be their brother bringing over an old Bob Dylan record from the West. Techno was the music of their liberation. This is what the future was supposed to sound like. So this social revolution is soundtracked by this new music and that it's just, it's just perfect. You know, Detroit, wasn't ready for techno. America wasn't ready for techno as a popular music phenomenon, but Berlin absolutely was. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, on the show, we tell a lot of stories about music being tied in with deaths, deaths of artists, deaths of fans, chaos, crime. But sometimes music is tied into these moments of liberation and celebration. And these are the good times, man. I mean, if if uh, if something like this happens post COVID, God bless. I, I hope it does. Um, you know, it's it's just. It's, well, the problem we have here is that it almost seems like you know authoritarianism is is, is winning over. Uh, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we get into uh, maybe the next book that we do on the generalized rave scene. But uh, there, there's a there's a there's an overall uh, diminishing of 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 generalized freedom your ability to go and throw a warehouse party is no longer what it was back in 1990 i'd say that if you did it now it's a good chance you'd end up in jail so yeah very and, true and and post 9-11 the american government has sort of internationalized this oppressive set of rules and there's very few sanctuaries uh, uh, people can get to but here's hoping i mean i i feel like Kids are going to find a way to celebrate just like they did in techno in Germany. And, you know, we talked about Joey Beltram or we used one of his songs and he's a New Yorker influenced by Detroit. But he's primarily I mean, his records are coming out on a Belgium label. So the fact that Renat and Sabine are the RNS label, um, they build this international roster with all kinds of house artists, all kinds of techno artists and quickly incentivize this, the emergence of what they call hardcore techno uh, coming out of Belgium. Stuff like Do That Dance by The Project, 
What are your thoughts on the Belgian twist on techno? Oh, I mean, so many important names coming out of Belgium. Praga Khan, Lords of Acid, Frank de Wolf, and then there's the Bonsai Records label, which to me is is pretty much the most influential record label of my life because I became a, a trance DJ after hearing a, a Bonsai record compilation off the front of a, of a magazine. So uh, it's just Belgium, as you said before, it, 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 it punches above its weight class. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure where, 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 how, where, how, how that ends up happening, how, how one place ends up having so much influence. But I'm, I'm grateful that it does. Uh, there was a, a hardcore compilation that came back with my friends who visited Belgium as part of a school trip in uh, God, it was like 1991. And that was the first time I heard gabber or hardcore or i guess rave music you know it, it it all kind of goes when house and techno had that rave baby and and that rave baby just just did whatever the hell it wanted and gabber kind of was the netherlands response to w what it could do with rave music and gabber being a term that was basically uh, you know uh, amsterdam if someone called you a gabber it meant you were a punk or an asshole and so they just adopted that slang and became gabberheads and it's a it's 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 a fascinating scene. We ended up spending years throwing gabber parties in Montreal, Canada, because it, you know by by the time you know 2005 rolled around, uh, it, it used to be in the like basically late 90s. If you wanted to book Paul Van Dyke, you could book Paul Van Dyke. You just needed five thousand bucks. But by 2005, it was more locked down, and uh, basically the Gabber guys were the only guys who were still willing to come over for a thousand bucks. So we were throwing Gabber parties in Montreal for years, and so I love the hardcore sound. I love the hardcore scene. It's definitely the most punk and the most underground of all the electronic music. Yeah, they compare it to Norwegian black metal, and and theorize that because the Dutch were so prosperous that uh, the Dutch kids were just really desperate for stimulation and gabber is their 200 beats per minute version of it I also love when we talk about northern soul they mentioned that gabber becomes enormously pop popular in glasgow so you know i just imagine those goons from train spotting listening to gabber <laughs> and jabbing people in the face with pint glasses but let's hear a little gabber this is um euro masters alisnar de clote <laughs> And that was Euromaster's Alisnar de Clote, uh, which is an example of the Gabber style, which is, you know, just one of those things that's become the redheaded stepchild of, of house and techno or EDM styles, but it has lingered on. And it's very interesting to me, this whole phenomenon that sort of happened in the 90s, where industrial groups like Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails, and Marilyn Manson kind of steal the heavy metal audience. And this, to me, Gabber was dance music's play, electronic dance music's play, to grab that same audience. And it never quite did. Prodigy made a run at it uh, in the 90s as well. And I don't know that they're Gabber, but they oh, were. Their, their, their first album is is old school hardcore through and through. They, these guys, those guys were the blueprint for, for what old school rave hardcore was. 
Good. And so, yeah, but they never quite took over that heavy metal meathead audience, um, but they made a play for it. I definitely, as a heavy metal meathead myself, this stuff definitely speaks to me as well. Let's go back a little, though. I want to talk about uh, R&S Records a little bit more. They say in 1991, it sold more 12 inches in Belgium than all other labels combined. So, you know, a small pond, but very big fish. But listen to their artist roster. They had Derek May, Aphex Twin, Jam and Spoon from Frankfurt, Frank DeWolf from Belgium, King Ishii from Japan, Joey Beltram from New York. I mean, they had, for my money, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, which I easily could be, but that's one of the best rosters of any label anywhere in the world for this kind of music. I mean, multiple genres are under their umbrella, and a record label like that, that goes a long way to explaining, you know, in Belgium, you've got, you've got, blatant regionalism so you've got the popcorn new beat roots they were used to go in their own way you had key djs and key producers and you had a key record label that that is putting this stuff out and and bringing it all over the world so and we, we, we forgot to mention earlier there's liaisons dangereuse which was a a belgian radio show that was so popular that you know people from other countries would drive up to Belgium to get close enough to the to transponder to be able to to hear the record show, radio show to record the radio show to hear it, and and that was, you know, so so that's that's another element of of, of the whole overall thing. You you need you need that strong, uh, you need that strong dance component. This was a dance oriented people who were used to going out to clubs and dancing. So that gets you the, the, the clubs that gets you the DJs. And then you get the record label, which was uh, coming in RNS. The reason that they were doing so well is because they were sick and tired of, of hearing cheap European knockoffs of the big hits. So they were actually going out and licensing all these American and UK and international artists. And they were, they ended up becoming basically the distribution hub for, for in, in Europe for all of these artists, which is why they've got uh, such a, a legendary selection of guys. And then you've got the radio station pushing all of these, all of these tunes out to the average people. So it's, I, I think that's kind of, we, over the last couple of shows, we've talked about how New York made it, how Chicago, made it how Detroit you know Detroit kind of faltered because they were missing that component they didn't have that nightclub scene so you seem to have need to have those those table legs in order for a scene to kind of sit properly absolutely and I'm so glad you brought up the radio element yeah because like we talked about with electrifying mojo in Detroit was kind of the radio show that set the scene for techno that was the radio show Derek May and those guys were listening to. And then in, in Chicago, the house uh, crew on the radio was definitely a part of it. And I'm always forgetting um, the name. I know Farley and Hurley and all those guys, what was the crew in Chicago? The Hot Mix 5, that's what it was, yes. So the Hot Mix 5 was in a huge part of house music becoming truly popular in Chicago. And in Chicago, Chicago, unlike Detroit, they did have the club scene. So yeah, that radio show in Belgium, absolutely critical to the scene blowing up. And then another thing that helped techno really take over in Berlin was this event they called the Love Parade. And I'm sure you've seen the viral video called the Techno Viking, or maybe you have, maybe you haven't, it's 20 years old at this point, but that's at the Love Parade. And just this massive, massive, massive public event. I mean, it's like March on Washington scale, you know, tens of thousands of people all across the city, all blaring techno um, and, and marching through the city in the love parade. It, it only lasted a few years, but absolutely sort of codified this stuff as 
this is a huge, huge deal in Europe, even if it's not uh, pop commercially music. That, yeah, commercially, yeah. it might it might still not be the commercial flavor du jour, but it's it's. And I think this is maybe what appealed to to so many people is it was it was counterculture. Uh, at, at this point, the labels. You know, the labels hadn't got their claws into it. They weren't trying to make the Chemical Brothers you know, big thing or anything like that. So it was a uh, when when the Love Parade came out and it was, you know, a barely legal uh, political parade. Everybody kind of got into it and got behind it and said, this represents us and it represents freedom. And, you know, as we were talking about before with, you know, whether or not we'll have a post-COVID freedom binge, who knows? And, and who knows what the soundtrack to that would be. But I'm sure it will be something uh, electronic and weird. I hope so. I hope so. And apologies for the dog being um, very protective. Someone wanted to put their business card on my door. We can't have that kind of thing. And I, I chose not to talk about trance. Um, and chill out music, but they put it in this chapter, and we'll we'll come back to trance later. Um, you know, it's and it also another thing that sort of distorts the way that they do this. And I understand why they're doing it because the scene in Ibiza predates the acid house scene in England, but the stuff we're talking about now, the techno in Belgium and and Berlin and Gabber and and, uh, and Holland all postdates the acid house explosion which totally changes the context because this electronic dance music suddenly becomes an immensely popular phenomenon in britain which since the beatles has been one of the international tastemakers for pop music so next time we're going to talk about acid house and I'm not sure how if we'll be able to cover it in one week or not. Well, it depends on how much the chapter kind of goes back and covers the history of dance music in England in the 70s and 80s. The other stuff, the stuff that wasn't Northern Soul, that wasn't high energy, and was jazz funk, which as a kid growing up, I had the Throbbing Gristle record, 20 jazz funk greats, and didn't realize that they were really poking fun at the dominant dance culture scene in London. So we'll have to decide how much time we want to devote to that scene, because it's definitely not something that's historically that important, other than being... Yeah, outside of the UK. Yeah, It's the fallow ground in which Acid House exploded. It's... It's sort of like the white 50s pop that Elvis and Chuck Berry come along and displace with rock and roll. It's, it's, it's this sort of fusty, musty Margaret Thatcher cocktails of white wine and tweed, stuffy, boring scene um, that is absolutely primed for revolution. So when we come back next week, Ryan Harkness and I will continue our discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And we'll be diving into, this is the big one, as they say, Acid House Hits England. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be covering the acid house explosion that shook Britain in the late 1980s and early 90s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.
Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.